The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, today, Lloyd, our show is about the Fourth Amendment and how it applies to various uh, cases that that are really significant right now. And we are so pleased because we are going to be speaking with Alan Butler, who is Senior Consul with the Electronic Privacy Information Center in Washington, D.C. We've had several people on from that organization, and I always make sure that I donate to them. They're a wonderful organization protecting our privacy. Let me tell you a little bit about Alan Butler. And he is Senior Consul at EPIC in Washington, D.C., and he manages EPIC's appellate litigation, including the amicus program and files. He files briefs in emerging privacy and civil liberties cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and other appellate courts. He has argued on behalf of EPIC in privacy and open government cases, and most recently, he authored Epic's brief in Riley versus California, which was cited in the Supreme Court's unanimous opinion upholding Fourth Amendment protections for cell phones. So that was really wonderful. That was right coming out of our state. And he's also authored briefs on national security, open government, workplace privacy, and consumer privacy issues. He has several articles, uh, recent articles that have been uh, in Law Review, which is very um, an honor. Um, one of them is Standing Up to Clapper, How to Increase Transparency and Oversight of FISA Surveillance. And he also has When Cyber Weapons End Up on Private Networks, Third Amendment Implications for Cybersecurity Policy. And then he has one this year called Get a Warrant in Riley versus California. The Supreme Court set a course for digital privacy rights. That's um, going to be in the Duke Journal of Constitutional Law. So we're just thrilled to have him join us and talk about some of these really crucial issues for privacy. Alan, thank you so much for joining us all the way from D.C. Thanks for having me, Mari. 
Okay, so, you know, I how I found you was when I read the article that you bylined called Court Must Keep Protecting Privacy. And this was a, a funny, like a, a point and counterpoint. And we have already interviewed Lisa Sorensen, who wrote, Registry Searches Are a Valuable Law Enforcement Tool. So you were really, um, you know, arguing the opposite. And so let's talk a little bit about that that case, um, because I think that's really Im- important, talking about the city of Los Angeles versus Patel. You want to tell us a little bit about the the actual primary dispute and and uh, the the two versions of, of how people think it should go? Sure. So in city of Los Angeles versus Patel, um, what you have is you have a group of motel owners in Los Angeles who are challenging uh, the application of a city ordinance. And this city ordinance uh, requires motel and hotel owners to maintain guest registries, which include uh, a number of details about their their guests that, that stay and register there, including their names, um, information about uh, their, their payment information, their credit cards, their addresses, uh, in some cases their... Uh, driver's license numbers and license plate numbers. So information about their guests and about their guests' vehicles and other credentials. And they're required to maintain these registries. And then the ordinance um, also provided in in a recently amended version uh, a requirement that they make these registries available for inspection by law enforcement officers upon request. And that is what the motels had challenged in the federal court in in California. They argued that that requirement, that they make the registries available for law enforcement on request, uh, violated their Fourth Amendment rights as motel owners because the registries were their records and the records of their customers and that they those registries uh, couldn't be subject to warrantless inspection without uh, violating the Fourth Amendment, that this entire scheme uh, violated the Fourth Amendment. Okay, so let's talk about the Fourth Amendment, because when we had Lisa on, she said, well, the Fourth Amendment, you know, the privacy rights of the of the uh, people who are going to the motel, maybe maybe that's the issue, but, but really the Fourth Amendment of the motels, uh, their Fourth Amendment rights uh, shouldn't really be an issue. So what do you say to that? You know, it, it's an interesting dance that happens uh, in many of these cases, right? I mean, in a case where the motel is asserting privacy rights over records, uh, the motel's business records and records about the motel's customers, uh, you'll hear some people argue that, well, the motel doesn't really have any interest in these records. But then, of course, if it were the customers in court arguing <clears throat> their privacy interest in the records, then the same people would be arguing, oh, well, the customers don't have privacy interest in these records because they're the records of the motel. Right, so right. It's a bit, it's a bit duplicative to, to take to hold both positions, and I think that I think that it can be that it is true for both the motel and the motel guests that there are privacy interests at stake. And one thing that's you know important to note is that recently the Supreme Court has taken an increasingly stronger position on Fourth Amendment rights, and in particular, a stronger position on. Fourth Amendment rights uh, related to property rights and property intrusions, and the court has moved away from um, an analysis solely based on the expectations of individuals, and you know added in addition to that an analysis based on property rights. So when the law enforcement officers in these cases, as they conceded in this case, when they 
come onto a hotel's premises and ask them to inspect their records, that is, you know, by definition, an intrusion. Yeah. And so I, th- I do think that triggers Fourth Amendment scrutiny. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, for those people who are listening who are not really that familiar with the Constitution and what that means, let's talk a little bit about what is the Fourth Amendment supposed to protect? Sure. Well, the Fourth Amendment, by its own text, is meant to ensure that people are secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Okay. And this is a right that sh- it says shall not be violated. And so really this law, this constitutional provision, which was added, you know, during the founding in reaction to uh, the, the general warrants uh, implemented by, by the, the English courts during the pre-revolutionary period, was really a, a sort of embodiment of this ideal that individuals should not be subject to warrantless inspection, that there should be judicial oversight when a law enforcement, when a government agent seeks to intrude upon an individual's person, their houses, their papers, and effects, right? Mm-hmm. And it really includes all of those things. Now, for a long time, this provision was interpreted before the advent of modern communications to be somewhat limited to physical, certain physical spaces, like people's homes and private desk drawers and the like. And when telephones were first rolled out, there was a bit um, of sort of a disconnect between that view of the Fourth Amendment traditionally being a you know, property and place-based view and this new advent of electronic communication and how that rule would apply to these new telephonic communications that were traveling over wires outside of our homes and outside of our traditional private spaces. And so you had a period of several decades in the early 1900s where the Supreme Court didn't recognize privacy interests in those conversations over telephone wires until the 1960s and, and afterwards where the Supreme Court reversed itself and said, you know, this, the statute protects people, not just places, and it also protects the privacy of conversations. But we never lost that core element of protection of the person, the house, the effect that was always in place. And and really, the law serves this important purpose to protect, again, individuals and their property from invasions by government agents without that judicial supervision that is so key. Right. So in in the counterpoint where Lisa talked about, well, it's such a valuable law enforcement tool that law enforcement can come in and look and see what's going on and, and, you know, uh, prevent violence or prevent criminal action or terrorism. What about a warrant? Why can't they get a warrant? Exactly. And I think that to say that it's valuable to promote the interests of law enforcement and, and national security, those are certainly true statements, but those are both encompassed in the Fourth Amendment. I mean, certainly the founders were aware that law enforcement was an activity of substantial government interest, as was national security when they adopted the Fourth Amendment. And so incorporated into this rule you know, is the concept of unreasonable searches and seizures. And this reasonableness is where the courts traditionally deal with exigent circumstances and emergencies, for example, you know, when there's life and when someone's life is on the line and and police officers may need to enter a home to protect that individual or when they're in hot pursuit of a criminal, you know, but what's, what's really different Mm -hmm. about this case, uh, especially, you know, interesting to that point you made is that 
the, the city of Los Angeles isn't actually justifying these hotel registry inspections on the grounds that there are, um, you know, meant promoting law enforcement. They're supposed mm-hmm. to be using these inspections to make sure that the hotels are complying with this registration scheme. And then the purpose of the registration scheme is to deter people from doing bad things in hotels and motels. Hmm. <laughs> it's not an exigent circumstance. Then. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we're expecting that the uh, the court will come down. And what do you think that the court's going to say about this? given the fact that they've been more cautious about Fourth Amendment rights with regard to cell phones, and what do you think they're going to say? You know, the court, as you said, the court's been uh, much stronger uh, on on Fourth Amendment privacy rights uh, in, the, in the last few years, and I think that um, that is very likely that the court will continue that trend in this case. I think that this tr- case you know, presents a number of complicated issues, and it's, it's not exactly clear how the court will come out, for example, um, how it will analyze in a, a, a scheme of registration and administration, right, whether they think that the city um, has an interest in using these spot inspections to ensure that hotels are actually complying with the registry. But I believe that if the court recognizes that these spot inspections are really just an excuse to get a hold of the underlying information about guests and what the guests are doing in the hotels, then I think the court's traditional analysis should apply that this is a law enforcement search and a warrant should be required. Right. You know, and it it made me think of, I wonder how that would be in Germany, you know, because Germany has really um, been very cautious about this since the Nazi times, right? Right. And that, you know, if they, if you just go in and you just search things, um, what are you searching for? You know, I mean, that's, that would just uh, seem like you're really opening up a a huge can of worms and it's danger. You also talked about the First Amendment, and so um, I thought that was an interesting argument, that the First Amendment, that people go to hotels and they gather together, and they have conventions, right? And they they often will, like the NAACP would meet, or maybe some organization. So let's talk a little bit about the First Amendment, right, and how that... that um, this registry might might uh, be a, a challenge for that one. Sure. So the Supreme Court has long recognized that individuals have a right to join associations and to, in particular, to participate anonymously in political action. And this, uh, there's a line of cases tracing back to NAACP versus Alabama, uh, which is a case that was issued during the civil rights period that protects the lists of political organizations from disclosure so that individuals can't, you know, the government can't compel the disclosure of these political organization lists, you know, that would really chill that free association and threaten those political organizations. And what we argue in this case is that that's essentially what will happen if you open up all hotel registries to inspection without warrant or without any opportunity for judicial review because of course hotels are these you know locations where we gather hotels are where we host our conferences and, our, and many of our political and social events there are you know religious organizations and other political organizations that rely on these hotels 
um, to provide services and provide uh, a place to stay for their registrants. And so, right. instead of getting the guest list of the N- or instead of getting the membership list of the NAACP, for example, you could just get the guest list of the people staying at the hotel during the NAAC conference, and you would have essentially done an end run around that rule. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about um, going back to the, the digital rights that you have with the Fourth Amendment, you know, because that's, that's uh, something more recent, and I know that you were very active in the, our cell phone case. So let's talk a little bit about the Riley case and what happened and what the Supreme Court had said. Sure. So in Riley versus California, you had two cases that the Supreme Court was considering uh, side by side, and both cases involved a law enforcement uh, seizure and and ultimate search of a cell phone uh, without a warrant and without probable cause to believe that there was any criminal evidence on that phone. Um, in the one, the first case, Riley, uh, you had a it was a California police officer who had arrested an individual based on a traffic citation um, and later uh, placed that individual under arrest based on weapons found on the ca- in the car during an inspection. And after they arrested the individual, they took his phone and they searched through his phone for evidence of additional crimes. Um, and similarly, in the other uh, case that was that came out of the First Circuit of Massachusetts, you had an individual who was placed under arrest who had multiple phones on his person, and the officers were able, by seeing that phone ring and, and reading the contact information on that phone, to see, to l- locate his home and ultimately search his home. And so in both cases, the question was whether when an individual is placed under arrest lawfully, whether that arrest itself gives law enforcement officers um, the, the opportunity to search their phone without any additional suspicion or warrant. Mm. And so the question was, when an individual is pl- traditionally placed under arrest, uh, the rule, the, what's called the Robinson Rule, had been that you can search that individual's person and the immediate premises surrounding them to make sure that there aren't any weapons or that there isn't any evidence that might be disposed of during that initial arrest period. So it was really to secure the, arrest, the person that you were placing under arrest and to secure the area around them. It was never meant to be a method of criminal investigation, it was meant to protect the safety of the officer and to prevent the destruction of evidence. And so what you had in these cell phone cases is you had the seizure of a phone and its, and its subsequent search in a different location by a different person for a very different purpose. And so the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the default rule that it applied to physical items like papers or wallets in your pocket would not apply to cell phones and other digital devices, specifically to the data on those devices, because that data uh, is simply not equivalent to a piece of paper in your pocket. It's something that, you know, while it may have value as criminal evidence, that, that value is something that you only get if you go through the proper procedures of obtaining a warrant. Right, and on our smartphones now we have everything, and we have things about our family and our friends, and um, and so it's it's much more invasive than just a piece of paper sitting on you. Exactly, and and that's really the key difference here between you know the traditional physical items that we think about in, under the Robinson Rule or in other scenarios, and these new uh, digital devices is that there's a really a qual- both a quantitative and a qualitative difference in the kind of information that you can get from these devices. Quantitatively, you you have 
the equivalent of millions of pages, right? You have the, right. the equivalent of, of more physical items than you could ever carry on your person. Right. And qualitatively, you have information about you on these devices that there's really no physical analog to. I mean, none of us would ever have, you know, the entirety of all of our sensitive communications and all of our financial statements um, and all of our travel records on our person, in our pocket, or in any one place at any one time. And yet that's exactly what our cell phones hold, right? One of the points we made in our brief in that case was that cell phones not only hold photos and private communications and financial data, but they also prov- the cell phone is also essentially a key that unlocks your bank account, right? That right. unlocks your social media accounts and might even unlock your home if you have a new, right. uh, or your car if you have a newfangled uh, alarm system. Right, right. And how about, did you talk anything about the people who communicate with you on, on there too? Because it's it's their privacy rights as well. Right. Yeah. Anytime you're talking about uh, obtaining private communications, you're, you're, you're impacting not only the, the person who's talking, but also the person they're talking to. Yeah. Yeah, so that was that was a great decision. So, thinking of the Supreme Court and the and the conservative nature of the Supreme Court, have you seen their approach to privacy issue change in the past few years? I think there's been a, a discernible shift, um, beginning, I would say, with the Jones, the United States versus Jones case back in 2012, which was about. Um, tracking cars with a GPS locator. And I think the court began to realize that the, the shift to digital was going to fundamentally change the application of the Fourth Amendment. And the court began to recognize that in cases like Jones um, and ultimately in, in Riley, I think. And, and also the court uh, began to shift its focus in certain cases away from expectations only expectations of privacy and began to focus also on uh, concepts of traditional concepts of property and trespass, especially in areas surrounding the home or other physical items. So the court, in that sense, I think, is providing itself with additional tools to address some of these new problems. Right, right. And surveillance, I would think, is, is, is also a huge issue. So what are some of the most significant privacy issues that we face today? I mean, I, in my mind, I'm, I'm, I think about drones. I think <laughs> all of these crazy things with all of the technology, with the Internet of things. What, what are your thoughts about that? I agree completely. I mean, I think that we face, there are a lot of significant um, issues facing us today. Our docket is certainly very full. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the big things that people like to focus on out here in Washington, D.C. is cybersecurity. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot and not defined a lot. But I'll tell you what I see is I see a lot of companies that uh, everyday consumers rely on uh, to collect and protect uh, sensitive information, including their credit cards and other information, getting hacked and, and getting breached, right? And we right. see sensitive financial records being released, uh, credit card numbers being released, people suffering identity theft. I mean, identity theft is one of the top consumer complaints in America year in, year out. Right. And, and that, that really stems from the collection and failure to protect personal information. And, and really, it's a critical issue for consumer rights. But I agree that the, the deployment of drones within the United States is going to be a huge issue. Epic actually has a current a case against the Federal Aviation Administration where we're arguing that the administration needs to implement privacy rules now before these devices get 
deployed, right? Before we have broad-scale use of these devices by Amazon and Google and all these other companies, we need to have privacy rules first, not later. And not only that, I mean, you can get it, you can actually get these little drones. We see people on the beach that have have drones. Exactly. <laughs> Hobbyist drones now are, are can be purchased on Amazon and right. stores for, for very little money. And they're tiny. I mean, you can have a little bug that could come and look in my window right now. Exactly, and they're all equipped with cameras. Yes, yes. What else? I mean... Um, I also think, you know, on a related point to kind of the data breaches in cybersecurity, just the general uh, both monetization of personal data, something that that sometimes gets washed under the term big data, but really it's, you know, the monetization of data, the creation of consumer profiles, Mm -hmm. um, and the use of these uh, profiles and, and, you know, in many cases the exchange of profiles by by uh, data brokers affects our everyday lives. I mean, there are, there are decisions that are being made about all of us based on the data we leave behind. And a lot of times we don't even know how those decisions are being made. This is a concept that we're highlighting this year and we're talking about in terms of algorithmic transparency. Mm-hmm. And we believe that these algorithms that govern our lives uh, and, and control and affect the data that's collected about us need to be transparent. Exactly, because, you know, as as one who, who deals with identity theft victims quite often, those records are, are, are erroneous. Sometimes right. they're, you know, sometimes there's a mistake and sometimes there's identity theft, and so the data that we leave behind might not even be our data. Exactly. <laughs> and so if that's being sold upon us, what do we do? You know, I just did... Uh, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse and I, Beth Givens and I, and some people from the Federal Trade Commission did a program at the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and we did that on background checks because there are so many problems with background checks, and many companies are doing that routinely, and they're, you know, um, profiling you and looking at you, and it might not even be true, and you don't even have access to all the things that they have access to, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when you were talking about cybersecurity, you know, how do we promote privacy while maintaining security? People think that it's a trade-off. Can't can't you have both? I, I definitely think not only we can have both, but we should have both. Okay. And I think that people underestimate in the debate how much privacy is a component of security, especially in the cybersecurity context, right? It's, it's kind of vexing to hear, you know, the... the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which is our country's, you know, agency charged with investigating major crimes, um, talking about how they want there to be weaker standards for securing personal data. Well, the theft of personal data is one of the biggest crimes going on in America right now. Data breaches are rampant, and we need to have more computer security, not weaker security standards. And so I don't think these, these two goals are necessarily inconsistent. And in fact, um, you know, with regards to the surveillance reform debate, after the revelations of Edward Snowden in 2013, the president commissioned a review group by top officials within and with outside of the administration, and that review group concluded um, exactly that that it was necessary to to provide greater you know security and protection for what they call information assurance, and that it, it didn't make sense to to attempt to weaken these types of standards and it didn't make sense to be to you know, to be making us less secure in terms of our 
technology in an effort to increase surveillance. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Ed Snowden I, when I was in D.C. It's uh, interesting how people think of him, you know, you, you either think of him as a hero or, you know, or as a traitor. And, um, you know, to me, he was a whistleblower. And, and a lot of what we're seeing now, I mean, I would think that we can address in Congress and have epic address for us is the uh, revelations of Ed Snowden. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, the focus needs to rightly be on addressing all of the issues that were raised there, right? And we haven't, we haven't done that. It hasn't been done by Congress, and it hasn't <clears throat> been done by the administration yet. Um, there's been some progress on, on the administration side. President Obama, his speech in January of 2014 and the subsequent changes that were enacted by the Director of National Intelligence, you know, started down that road in terms of adding some limitations to the telephone records program and Im- imposing new restrictions on the collection and sharing of personal data, both of U.S. citizens and of others. But Congress has completely stalled so far on any meaningful reform of these surveillance authorities. You know, and, and, to, and recently we're seeing Senator Mitch McConnell uh, push for what they call a clean reauthorization of the current authorities. He just wants to continue um, business as usual. Which yeah. I don't think is acceptable. No. And we are just out of time. So uh, give us your website, and we will have to keep in touch and have you back again. Okay, Alan? Sure. You can find us at uh, www.epic.org. That's E P I C dot O R G. Thank you so much, and you keep up all the great work, okay? Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every morning, at, every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. 